we are in a series that I have been enjoying tremendously because it's really causing for some of us to do something that maybe we don't often do. Think ahead. You know, what will my life look like five years from now? I had somebody here from the church say, five years from now, I'm going to be dead. I said, well, you don't know that. All right. Five years from now, I could be dead. Who knows? Uh, But does that mean we should stop trying to think about what could I, what should I look like five years from now? And in this time to that time, how can I grow in Christ? And as a result, this sermon series has really been geared more towards people who have a relationship with Jesus and want to see that relationship it get better. Uh, but in all sincerity, we've been looking at the gospel in many ways each and every week, and that might be opening somebody's heart who is a non-believer to say, hey, listen, I really want to give my life over to Christ for the first time or renew my dedication to Christ or whatever it may be. But the main focus that we've been looking at is these characteristics or ideas of characteristics within our life. And I guarantee you, everybody in this room, I'm just like you and you're just like me. There are some things in our life where we're frustrated that that is still a part of my life, that I still wrestle with it, that I still struggle with this. And we want to know what's a path forward, what is something that I can actually do to begin to see Christ more and the characteristics of Jesus in my life more and the characteristics of the world less. And this message today is really focused on how do we get from point A to point B in that regard. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. Uh, We've been looking at just a section of books in the Bible. We're moving from Philippians to Colossians today. And so we're going to look at something from chapter one and something from chapter three in this book. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, look on the racks in front of you. If you like using the Bible app, which is different than our church app, okay? And if you have that app, uh, we have our sermon notes in there. And so you can follow along with our sermon notes there. If you go to the events tab, you'll find Canoe Creek. And, and follow along as we read this together. We're going to read first Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And we're going to look at, to many degrees, why it's possible for those characteristics in our life that we're trying to shake to actually be shaken, to be gone, and for us to change. And so let's read this together. Colossians 1, 21 through 23, once you, us, we were alienated from God, and we were enemies in your mind uh, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from every any accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in what? The gospel, amen. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. So this is God's word. This starts to reveal to us why it is possible that our character can change for the better. It's one simple and one real truth presented here in the gospel. God reconciles us. That's why it's possible. It's his work, it's his power, it's his desire, it's his heart. 
And he has already demonstrated, as Clint pointed out, we're singing songs that talk about what he's done in the past. And when we set our mind on that truth and what he has promised, it really sets our heart today to worship him in such a way that we believe he can do things that I cannot do on my own. And so this statement about the gospel, though, it is followed by a conditional statement. If you continue in your faith. Now, this conditional clause is not established to basically say, okay, God's giving you something now, and now you better maintain it, because if you don't maintain it, you're going to lose it, and so on and so forth. Here's the reality, all right? If that were the case, then salvation would be ours to gain. It would be by work, and not by God's grace, not by his gift, not by his ability. But here's what we really know to be true in this conditional statement. Basically, continuance is the test of faith, and character is transformed when we continue in Christ. Uh, Point being is how we begin to live, things we begin to do, they demonstrate whether or not I literally believe, set my mind on what God has said and promised and done. And that begins to transform and shape how I set into my heart right now what I will do and how I will live. So it's a continuance of faith. And so we continue in faith, not perfection. It doesn't say if you continue in perfection. If you continue in doing everything right every day, it says if you continue in believing in faith that the gospel has ability to set you apart without accusation, regardless of how well or good you know how to live your life. That's the beauty of it. Our faith is in our internal change that God is able to bring about. That internal changes, you're no longer an enemy. I know we don't like that language, but hey, I, I can't change the Bible. You, neither should you, right? But we're no longer an enemy, We're reconciled, it says, to God. There's this change that's made that sets us in a position to where we are now without accusation. Satan can sit there and just pounce on you mentally and try to drive you from guilt. Guilt's good, shame's bad. Try to drive you from guilt. That is recognizing I've done something wrong. I should rethink how I do this to shame which is a mental issue that drives you downhill. But the reality of it is, is this passage says you're without accusation. This is God's love and desire for us. Here's the way I've illustrated it over the years. I came across this many years ago. Can't even remember where I read it. And it's just been such a good, simple reality. Back in the day when a foreign enemy wanted to take over certain land, they would go to wherever the main capital was. They would lay up sieges against the wall and they would slowly starve them out and move their way from the outside in until they had everything and then can put it under their control. It's the exact opposite of what God does with us. God comes into the very center place, the castle, the heart, And he does something there that we cannot do for ourselves. And as we trust that and put our faith in it over time, it begins to change everything from the inside out. This is the kind of character change that the Bible's talking about and it's what we're after and it's possible because God is the one at work to reconcile us. And one last little quick side note here. Everyone's being shaped by something. There's no exemptions to this. Everyone's always being shaped by something. Okay, so somebody's going to come along and tell you, like maybe you're a Christian, you're just 
You're just even about sharing your faith. You're just somewhat casual. Hey, I go to this church. Hey, do you believe in Jesus? Not, you know, all dogmatic and weird like. And somebody can say, you're wrong. You shouldn't share that type of stuff. You should just let everybody believe how they want to believe. That's fine. Somebody wants to believe that way. But they'll say, you know, they'll be dogmatic about you being dogmatic. You get where I'm going? They're they're like, hey, you, you shouldn't share your faith. And they're so expressive about sharing that you shouldn't share. You see what I'm saying? At the end of the day, here's the reality. Uh, They they have a belief. Their belief is you shouldn't tell anybody what they should believe. They have a doctrine. Their mind is set to something that is forming them. It's shaping them. Everybody is converted to something. Everyone has their character being shaped by what they believe. And so with Christianity, the change is radical even if the immediate outward characteristical changes are not. That's what this passage is telling us, and it's so important to get our minds around that. And we're going to see that as we read these next two sections. Now, these next two sections come from the third chapter, and it's verses 1 basically through 12, and we're going to read it in two different sections. So are you ready to follow along with me? Here's what we read. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Here's where it gets radical. You died. You're like, but I'm not dead. I'm alive. That's not how God sees it. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ is our lives. Christ died, Christ resurrected. It means we have died, we have resurrected in the eyes of God. This is a radical change. This is a radical difference. Uh, This further illustrates this sharp contrast that Paul started to make in that very first chapter. And, And the idea isn't like, okay, you need to go change your underwear. Okay, no, it's like I'm changing my skin. I'm changing everything about me. It's a very radical perception that we're being given. And in this next section, Paul gives two lists of five characteristics each. They, they correspond to one another about issues within the world that we see are bad characteristically. Then he compares them with five godly characteristics at the end. So starting in verse five, read with me. It says this, put to death getting radical again. Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, Paul says. Because of them, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself as all such things as these, as kind of the emotional correspondent to these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. How? In the knowledge and the image of its creator. It's being made new. How? In what I set my mind to know about God in faith. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, this is how we clothe ourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and patience. So let's explore the what and the how of character changes in our life that really reflect what's gone on internally. And maybe some of those things that we have struggled Uh, to see changes in our lives where we really want to see them. 
And here's the thing. There's two key words, I think, in this list of five, uh, two different lists of fives, evil desire and idolatry. Uh, When you look at evil desire, we get this picture of, oh, don't chase the forbidden fruit. Here's the bad list. Here's the good list. This is the wrong way to see it. Completely wrong. Here's why. The word in its original context means an over-desire. It means to desire too much. Desire something that ultimately is good, but in the end, it is not good to have that much of a desire for it. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Sometimes I'll say something that's a little bit off color of a sexual nature to my wife in private, and she'll smile and say, you're just wrong. And I'll say, no, I'm absolutely right, because God gave me this desire for you, and that's good. But when it goes into overdrive in ways that it should not, there's problems there. I mean, for example, listen, everybody enjoys a piece of fried chicken every once in a while. Colonel Sanders can't be wrong. You know what I'm saying? But if that's what you're eating all the time, and when you sit down to eat it, you eat a whole bucket, there's a problem. This is what the word is trying to get our hearts to understand and see. The problem occurs when the God-given desire we have is stuck in overdrive, essentially. So desire is not the issue. But an inordinate desire or an over-desire is the essence of what is wrong with you and what is wrong with me in the world in which we ultimately live. And then this takes us into that next word, idolatry. Now, this is the second key term, and you may say, well, it's just tied to the word greed. He said greed, which is idolatry. But if you go to Ephesians 5.3, you'll find that he ties idolatry, Paul does, to everything. He ties it to everything. He doesn't limit to anything. And so it's important for us to see that. Most everything that troubles you in regards to these types of characteristics mentioned, which goes to bitterness, which goes to impurity, which goes to malice and other problems, all of it at the heart is being driven by an issue with idolatry. And I have always appreciated and often used the quote from Timothy Keller. He defines idolatry in the most clear, simple, and perfect way. It is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. This is what idolatry is. Most of us look at Old Testament stuff or this term and this idea, idolatry, and they're bowing before idols and carved stuff and whatever. It makes no sense. It makes perfect sense when we start to put it into the context of especially the word that we see here with evil desire, which is an over-desire, and giving to that which God has given to us more power than it deserves. It's worshiping. It's giving our hearts over to the thing that was created rather than the one who created. This is at the heart and the issue of idolatry. And here's what happens. Our hearts and our minds work in a psychodynamically way that God has to change some of those things in the world in which we're in because we are broken. Let me explain it this way. Um, All of us have a source of energy, like we're all engines and there is fuel that is driving us. And we are in a world and we are components of that world that has broken carburetors. Carburetor is that thing that takes the fuel and it takes the air and it mixes it in just such a way that our engine runs at the right speed. 
And the problem is, is in this world where it's broken and sin is present, Satan is giving us way too much fuel for the things that are good. And we take with this overdrive and make them ultimate things and begin to worship in such a way that it is called evil desires. The only one who can fix that is God. The only one who can change that fuel mixture to give you the ability to live and praise and be thankful for all that you have, but giving the right type of worship, setting your heart in the right place is ultimately God. So there's no self-help that can fix this. There's no eat this, drink that, read him, read her, go to this group, have this guru, and so on. Make no mistakes about it. Self-help people have doctrine, they have faith, they have a set of beliefs, and it shapes them. Uh, That faith may be a diet, it may be a book, it may be a system, or even their own ability to unlock their mind to be a better person at the end of the day. But listen, at least be fair. Don't tap dance around us like Gene Kelly or something. Be honest with yourself. Be a man about it. Be a woman about it. Own up to it. If this is what you're really leaning into, you have a self-help syndrome. You have a Superman syndrome. You think you can fix what is wrong about yourself. The only thing I ask you to consider is how well has that worked for you up to this point? Swapping one thing for the next, thinking this one's going to work, that one's going to work. God's calling us to see it's only when we set our hearts towards him that we can ultimately begin to see those types of things, why those characteristics are problematic in our life, and how we begin to grow out of them. Uh, Listen, at the end of the day, here's what's happening with any of those things. The book, the speaker, the guru, the the group, the idea, the system, you're worshiping them. You're giving to them a sense of power, even when it's self-induced in the sense that I can do this. Guess who you're giving the power to then? Yourself. And you're worshiping yourself in such a way that you think, or worshiping this thing or that thing in such a way, it's going to fix me. It's going to change me. It's going to make me five years from now amazing. And the reality of it is, it doesn't. And we see this cycle continue over and over again. Because at the end of the day, here's what's interesting. Religious people, I'm just throwing us into that category right now. We're religious people. We are in a religious event. So, okay, it, it fits. If the shoe fits, wear it, all right? Religious people don't think they have idols. And yet the Bible shows us over and over again, we're the, we're the epitome of people who have idols. Irreligious people This is the interesting irony. Irreligious people, non-religious people, they don't think they worship. And yet they do every day. And these are things that we should come to grips with, comes to term with. The idea of worshiping something is built into our DNA. We will always give something the affection of our heart to worship. And here's the point to all this. When you give yourself disproportionately to anything other than God, you'll always find your heart revving into overdrive to work in such a way it will destroy you. It will give good things, ultimate pleasures in such a way it will break you down and leave you dissatisfied over and over again. Find yourself going, why am I still here? Why am I still doing X, Y, Z in the end? What you give your heart to changes you. It shapes you. It forms you. And so when you bring into your heart the truth that you have set in your mind, your character will change. 
Could be for the better, for the worse. The question is, is the truth God's truth? Is it his promises? Is it what he's demonstrated he can do, has done? And are we setting that truth into our hearts today as we live to say, I'm going to respond to this, respond to that, do this, do that, based on what I know God has said to me. Based on what I know God has promised me. When we do that, guess what we are doing? We are worshiping God in such a way it will form us and it will shape us. Here's the interesting thing. Old Scottish Presbyterian minister said this. There is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. He's saying you're never going to transform in such a way to where your heart doesn't have an object of beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispose the heart of an old affection is by the explosive power of a new one. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we're created to worship. He's saying it's in our DNA. He's saying your heart will love something in such a way that it will give the full self over to it and that will shape you. The question is whether or not you're giving it to something that is worthy of that. And that's how we come to find who we are. Here's what it means. Idols in the heart cannot be removed, but they can be replaced. And so here's what the secular world does. It puts all the emphasis on feeling better about yourself, doing something nice for yourself, focusing on positive thinking, which is what? Self-worship in the end. But here's the real answer. Here's the real solution. Here's how we get to the place where we know what our idols are and we know how to live in such a way to be transformed and changed. It's worship. It's giving ourselves over to God, setting our mind on his truth and setting our hearts to follow that truth in every way possible. Here's the thing. In this passage, we read that Jesus is exalted and by nature of our relationship with Jesus, guess what? We are lifted up as well. That is the gospel. When we set our mind to that, when we believe that, it puts us in a position to where we know and set our heart on it and we worship God in the freest way that we can. That is when we begin to change in many ways. So here's how it works. And I'm gonna wrap up with this. Here's how it works. Paul says you died, all right? So therefore we were raised. And then he reaches into the past to talk about this. This is something that happened to you with Christ. And it makes us go back to his crucifixion. It makes us look backwards in time and think about that and meditate on it and set our minds to it to then affix our heart to something in this moment and how I live and what I do. This is the spiritual act of worship that Romans 12 talks about. Now, the secular world will tell you to just gut it up, uh, to dig deep, to do better, to show yourself in self, uh, to shower yourself in self-focused care. Religion will sometimes motivate you by plucking at your heartstrings. You should be generous because there are people who need help. There's starving kids in such a country, yada, 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 right? Both of them are just simply trying to manipulate us. Nothing changes when that happens. Both are just trying to force actions into a different mold, but it doesn't work that way. Here's the thing. What does Paul write to us when he wants to change and shape the church? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's telling the church to be generous. Does he say, oh, there's so many people that are just so sad and so bad off and you just need to give to them? Does he appeal to us emotionally? No. What about Ephesians chapter 5 when he's telling husbands to love their wives? Does he say, you better do it? Does he command it? 
Either one's trying to manipulate our emotions. One of them is manipulating us through fear. The other one is through compassion. Either way, it's, it's, a, it's a manipulation of emotions. He doesn't do either one. What does he do? Second Corinthians chapter 8, he says, you should be generous. You know why? Jesus was generous to you on the cross. He reaches back into history and he sets our minds on something that is true about God. Ephesians chapter 5, you should love your wives. You know why? Jesus loved the church like a wife. He takes us back into history and he sets our minds on what is true about God to tune our hearts in this moment to worship him because worshiping him is the only thing that builds our character in the ways that we see here. There is sometimes second chance kind of movies, right? We're getting closer to Christmas, so It's a Wonderful Life comes to mind. Second chance movie, right? Uh, Annoyingly funny cult classic that is a second chance kind of movie is Groundhog Day. And what's interesting about both of these is they're metaphysical type second chance movies, right? Uh, Somehow time and space has been altered. The laws of nature have been altered to give these people a second chance. Here's what the gospel is. It is, it is the metaphysical altering of time and space. It is altering of the laws of nature so that we have the opportunity to have a second chance. Take it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity for your word to be preached today, for us to think about it and really reflect on it in our heart. We pray that we'd know it better and our pursuit in knowing it uh, helps to set our hearts on you. Uh, pursuit in knowing it helps us to worship you more day in and day out, which uh, changes us in ways that we see visibly in, in a matter of minutes, in a matter of days, and certainly over years' time, uh, to be proud and excited, not proud of ourselves, but proud of you, uh, what you're doing in us, what you're doing through us, and, and how you're building a community, a kingdom that you have declared exists, that you have demonstrated the power of, and you have shown how each and every one of us, regardless of sins, that if we sit here today and we hear the gospel today, there's hope for us. A second chance can be made that you have altered time and space and all the laws of nature so that we can be radically changed. So we're thankful for that. Help us to set our faith to believe and to trust that you're able to do that. Help us to identify those things that we are giving too much power to. And Father, help us to live in such a way that we only extend that power to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.